So on the panel, uh, this go-round, we have an artist based out of Seattle, Washington, who created Here Be Monsters as a way to address his many fears, Jeff Entman. We have the managing editor and producer for Here Be Monsters, originally from Montana, now living in Seattle, working as a dog walker, but not to forget your cat. Millhouse, who's an avid Here Be Monsters listener. And rounding it out, the Arrivals showmaker, a Heard Radio member, liminal audio composer, independent producer, reporter, and sound designer for NPR. Uh, is that Kiao? Let's see. Where? Oh, K-U-O-W. K-U-O-W. It's, in, it's, in, it's not in caps. Jonathan Hirsch. Will you welcome, please, Jeff Entman, Bethany Joe Denton, and Jonathan Hirsch. Now, one thing I was asked to do is to run through the titles, just to, 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 to tip you off. Jeff will be talking about the cult of the story. Bethany Joe will be talking about a case for the minimalist narrator. Jonathan, about storytelling versus stenography, truth and narrative in the age of alternative facts. And as a whole, it's, it's, it's with the title we've given this panel, this disrupting story, and this gentleman is... Is it that I'm too quiet or too... Yep. You, will you be spared my voice from now on, luckily, but they, they've, they've got that message, so I'll pass on the mic. All right. I'm going to do my best. I've been accused of, of uh, just as many worse crimes, I would say, than uh, being hard to understand. Um, I'm going to be trying to do a couple things in this talk. Again, I'm Jeff Entman. Um, I produce uh, the KCRW podcast, Here Be Monsters. It's based out of Seattle. KCRW's in LA. It's confusing, but we're in New York, so... Um, that's what's important right now. Thank you all for coming out after lunch. Um, I'm going to try and not put you to sleep too, too bad. Um, I'm going to be trying to convince you of, of several things. First of all, um, I'm going to be trying not to cough, sniffle, and sneeze too much. I'm getting over a cold right now, and this is going to be a challenge for me. But bear with me as I, uh, as I um, look uncomfortable just a little bit. Uh, the second thing I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be trying to convince you of a really simple argument. Um, first thing, uh, uh, I, I, I believe, and I've come to, the, come to the assumption that I am part of a massive cult. Um, I think Bethany is as well. Jonathan might be. I'm not sure yet. I, th I, think, um, I think some of the other presenters might be. Maybe a couple of you are as well. Um, this cult, uh, it's called the, the cult of the story, which is an intentionally hyperbolic term that I've, I've invented here recently um, to address what I see as a potential problem in the medium of documentary storytelling and podcasting. Now, um, the, the word cult, uh, again, as I mentioned, is, is a little bit intentionally hyperbolic. It might be a little too strong, but if that, if that bristles you, if that term bristles you, uh, you, could, you could replace it with like an overly, overly restrictive mindset or a strong predilection towards story. Um, all of these are accurate. But pick your choice of words. They, they all apply equally. Now, I, th I think this is something that, that people can get a little bit easily trapped in, in podcasting. And at the very least, um, even if it's not like a, like a, 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 a huge um, like, like cultish problem, it's at least an unhealthy itch to scratch. And my goal in this presentation is just to convince you of that, to convince you that there's something outside of story that we can be looking at in documentary podcasting. Now. Um, I have a couple definitions that I want to go over that I'm going to explain with the help of a visual aid that I make with uh, uh, Jonathan here um, uh, playing the slides. 
Um, uh, just, just so you know, uh, these, these, dictionary, these are not dictionary definitions. These are all ones I just kind of colloquially made up. So feel free to disagree with them. So um, can we go to the void here? We have the void. We have, we have nothingness, right? Okay, next slide. That's not, that's not that interesting. Let's go to the next here. Okay, so if this is everything there is, right? If, there's, if, this is, if, there's, if everything there is, like, like, so like frogs and lizards and snakes and toads and, and uh, things that we don't have names for, um, the tangible, the intangible, the corporeal, the spiritual, the, uh, I don't know, scorpions and uh, ideas, snakes, dust, airplanes, etc. This is everything there is, right? Um, okay, next slide. And some of those things are interesting, right? Some of those things are interesting, some of them are not, and that's fine. Um, things that are interesting are things that draw and keep attention. Sometimes things that are interesting are things that interest us emotionally um, and, and keep us engaged in that way. Okay, next slide. Then we have stories, right? Um, there's, a, there's a broad definition. The base most definition of what a story is, is a story is where a series of events happen in which something changes. Uh, there's a narrower definition of a story that, that you could, you could um, excuse me, that's the narrow definition of a story. The broader definition of a story would be something where there's um, a character or characters, and they're moving through some kind of plot line, and there's some kind of conflict, there's character development, and an ultimate resolution. Right? So there's these two definitions. I'm going to be talking about both of them here. The very narrow definition would be where something just changes. Um, the broader definition being something with, with characters and, and uh, plot and conflict and resolution. Um, and as you can see by my, uh, my Venn diagram here, I think that some stories are interesting and some stories are not. Um, okay, next slide. Now what I've been taught um, is that good podcasts come from the confluence, the intersection of these two, these two areas. <clears throat> and I, I noticed this. Um, I noticed this first when I was uh, when I was in school, and, and people told me what what kind of what kind of uh, radio or podcasting was was interesting. This again is in the context of documentary, not not just like news and, and straight up interviews. But um, I, I learned this first in school. Then when I was applying for jobs, and people were telling me, "Okay, pitch us stories. Like pitch us stories if you want this job." And then um, eventually, when I was trying to uh, pitch stories out to other other shows, um, it, it always came back to this simple thing: people would say, "Okay, like." I like your idea, but like, what's the story? What's the plot? Who are the characters? What's the conflict? Um, and if you don't have these things, uh, all you are left with is a premise or a topic, and those things are boring. Those things are not interesting, um, and therefore we should not make them because they're not stories. Uh, I think this, this extends even so far as the linguistics of it, where I very easily fall into this thing where when I'm talking about work that I've done, I will often uh, times refer to it just as a story, just, just by default, I'll refer to it as a story. And, and, and the, words in, the words are interchangeable, story, piece, episode, all these things seem quite interchangeable. And I, I think that there's something more out there, honestly. I, I think that this isn't all there is. Um, and so the very simple argument that I'm gonna be making is the next slide, which is that we should just expand that circle a little bit. And not everything has to be a story, that's it. Oh, no sniffles yet. Let's get one out. There we go. Um, okay, so what I'm going to be exploring in this presentation is I'm going to be um, talking about the strengths and the pitfalls of the story format in podcasting. I'm going to be playing examples of several non-stories. Um, a couple of them are going to be audio, and a couple of them are going to be video. And these are just going to be short excerpts. Um, and I'll give you the information to, to find the rest of these documentaries if, if you would like to see them and hear them. 
Okay, so we're done with the visual for now, though. You can, I don't know, you can do whatever you want with the, with the screen. Um, I haven't made a PowerPoint in years, and this was, this was my best attempt at it. Okay, um, so first of all, what we need to establish, I think, is why we have stories in the first place. Now, I, I think this is actually pretty simple. It's because this is, this is something that's kind of hard, hardwired into our brain in a certain way. Um, plot is this really great tool for creating intrigue. Um, so is character development. So is narrative arc. Uh, mysteries are great. They guarantee interest. Um, stories are easy to remember and easy to recite. And most of all, stories generate meaning. They, they take, uh, they're a force of order, right? They take, an they're, they're, they're a force of, I guess you'd say like anti-chaos, right? Anti-randomness. They give meaning. And all of this sounds really good. And I think it is in a lot of circumstances. I think it really can be a really good thing. So what's wrong with stories then? I think, that, I think that there is an issue with stories. And there's, a, there's an ethical argument to make here, which I think is a little bit too in the weeds to discuss in the, the amount of time we have. So I'm mostly going to stick to the, the creative side of this. Um, I think that stories can oftentimes limit the potential outcome of a piece, of an idea. Um, they're contrived, and they have rules. Um, and it, at its base most definition, like I said, a story involves something that has to change. And it turns out that if our, if our obligation is to the truth, we know this, not everything changes. Sometimes things stay the same. And that's a problem when you're forced to make a story out of something where everything stays the same. Um, further, uh, some interesting things don't have plots, don't have characters, don't even exist in time as we understand it. They're just an instant. Um, and, and the biggest problem that I see is that stories have to find morals and meanings in something that might truly be random and not story, um, not story fodder. So, like I said, there's an argument here for ethics, too, which is a little bit sticky. And, and if we have extra time at the end, I can go into this just a little bit in the Q&A. Um, but for the time being, um, we're going to get to the examples here pretty quick. Because like I said, this is a pretty simple argument that I'm making. I think it's easier made with examples than with me talking about it. Um, so I mentioned, I mentioned this in the, in the terms of a cult, right? In the terms of a cult. And, and the problem with a cult is that if you're inside a cult, it's kind of hard to see outside of it. Like, that's the whole thing is that, like, in my upbringing in, in media, I've, I've, kind of, I've kind of fallen into the inside of it. And it's, it's hard for me to break out of it. It's hard for me to see the medium from the outside. But this, this is my very, very subtle attempt at trying to do so. Um, how do we break out of the cult of story? Um, I think the way I think the way you do it, and, and we'll explore this in the examples. I think the way you do it is you look at you look at creators who have crossed lines, um, whether that's uh, whether that's uh, crossing a medium line, whether that's escaping the um, the, the like identity of of the the prevalent um, the prevalent uh, creators in podcasting. Um, or it's it's just looking at looking at creators that are coming from other countries. Um, I think that honestly, actually, I think filmmakers have been doing this for a long time. I think painters have explored the idea of story and non-story. I think sculptors do a good job of it too. And, and I think I think the way to look at it is to look at podcasts that are made by people who are not podcasters, um, because I think that I think that podcasting has kind of painted itself into a corner in a certain light. Now, um, we're going to look at a couple examples of what I think are. Uh, non-story or minimally story-based uh, uh, pieces of art. And I'm going to introduce each, each piece, going to play about a two-minute excerpt of each, and uh, briefly explain to you how this individual piece breaks out of what I call the cult of story. 
Um, some of them are impactful pieces, some of them are more trivial. And we're going to start with uh, one that comes from our own podcast, Here Be Monsters, which was pitched into us by an outside producer named Lisa Cantrell, who, um, who, who wanted to pitch us a piece that was not a story. It's just about a guy who can't wake up in the morning. Um, let's see how that sounds. <laughs> I set my alarm uh, to go off a few minutes before my personal assistant is supposed to come over and he comes by eight o'clock and knocks on my window with a stick. That way he doesn't have to step into the flower bed so he can reach across the flower bed with a stick. And he knocks on the window and I I can't hit the window snooze because he's over there with a stick knocking on the window. Uh. <clears throat> it's horrible. It's slippery here on these stones right by his window. He's got a, a stick that he props up against the, the wall outside and he just sort of taps on my window kind of lightly. Can you hear it? It's right at 8 o'clock. That's it. That's the knocking. Can you believe I actually pay for this shit? I just want to, like, go back to sleep. Let's see what's going on with the delineator. Hey! Oh, wait. Oh, he's up. So in this piece, um, again, this is called The Wake Up Stick. This is a piece we aired early in the season. Nothing changes, really. The only thing that changes is that you learn about this guy. That's like the only thing that, that really changes. I guess he wakes up in the morning, kind of. Um, but the main thrust of the story is actually, or see there, I, I, I've done it already. Uh, the main thrust of the piece is just that, is just that this guy hires someone uh, to wake him up in the morning. That's it. That's it. It's it's a character. It's a character study more than anything. Um, we have an, I have another uh, excerpt from a, a piece that we aired um, that Bethany produced, where Bethany was able to get permission to air um, uh, the voicemails recorded by the Satanic Prayer Hotline, um, and uh, there's a, there's a story element later in this piece. But the, piece, the part of the piece that everyone remembers is actually the first part, which is just a series of voicemails. And the, the, next, uh, the next bit of audio is just two of them, uh, back to back. Okay, how's it going? Um, uh, basically, a couple, about a month or two ago, my apartment got robbed. Uh, I still haven't figured anything out of where any of my stuff is at. Um, basically, I just want the people who, you know, stole my shit to, you know, suffer for it. Fair enough, I think. Um, like I said, I haven't heard anything about some of any names or any ideas who they are, but maybe something will pop up. I don't know. Uh, yeah, if you want to, you can post this to the uh, website. Other uh, than that, um, thanks. Uh, L. Satan.
Hi, my name is Debbie. I called a couple months ago to put up the text on somebody. Um, I'm a practicing satanic. Um, I had talked to Chris in Washington. I've been doing some work, and somebody's put a block or a bind on me. Um, I'm not sure what it is. My work's not going through as it should. Um, I do both healing and cursing. Um, I love to be part of this community. I love your website, by the way. Um, and so Chris has suggested I call you to see if you could put it on the website, Debbie from Wisconsin, to take whatever block or binding that has been put on me and remove it, please. Thank you, and hail Satan. Have a great day. <laughs> and, and honestly, the, the, the vast majority of the piece is just... I want you to post this on I forgot. Maybe there was a third one. Okay, that's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll skip it. We're, I think I'm running a little bit long right now. Anyways, that's, that's a piece that, that Beth did. Oh, what's that called? I actually I forgot to write the actually. Is it 6012Satan2 or something? It's like the phone number. You can call it and you can leave your, your voicemail. I th- <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, they, they like couldn't find like a really good well fit of a phone number, so they just had to pick something with Satan in it. Anyways. Um, the only, the only story I'm on that is like you hear that first guy, he like tells this very brief story, but that's not the interesting thing about this piece. It's, it's the, just the, the concept itself is, is so funny that, that people are calling in. And, and some of them are not funny, actually, to be honest with you. Some of them are quite unfunny. Um, those are two of the lighter ones. Um, and and uh, the, the other examples I want to show you here um, are, are from other producers who I think are doing interesting work. Um, I have an excerpt here from a, a story, um, excuse me, a piece. See, it's, it's hard. I can't do, I can't do it. I, I try. I'm too, I'm too deep in the cult. Um, uh, a, a really interesting uh, new podcast that's come out um, from a, a, someone I found out through, through music, uh, found out about through music, is a rapper named Bus Driver who um, lives out in California. Um, and he's, he's recently started a, a podcast called Free Black Press Radio. And... Um, and and he makes these experimental documentaries, and the, the piece that you're about to hear um, is about is about language. It's called the future of language, and this is just a brief excerpt from uh, from a recent episode. The Africans of the West been left with the scraps of the English language. No empowerment. Space, 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 racism has always been acute. The language has always been limited. Theories about the origins of black English revolve around black people not having the capacity for a more advanced form. Thick lips, thick minds. A popular idea was that black English was actually a fictitious creation of ingenious British playwrights. But in actuality, a lot of the speech patterns that are characteristic of black English originate from West Africa, from Gullah and pigeon strains brought along the slave routes, intermingling with the slave populace defining African expression in the West. So in a phrase like, I'm finna go to the stove, there is actually hidden African heritage within the syntax, within what society has deemed incorrect. The language has always been used to control us. Where does this language go? 
if intellectual exploration is so discouraged, how does that form our language? What do we become? What do we become after all this? What's the future language? What is So what I really like about uh, this radio show, this podcast, is that um, topics like this, which he's talking about language, you know, um, the focus is not on story. Again, it's on it's on abstraction and it's on sound because he's talking about an abstract sound-based topic, which I think is really beautiful to hear because it's not like there's there's someone in there saying and this happened and this happened and this happened and this, that would not be as effective in my opinion as what as what um bus drivers have been able to achieve uh on free black press radio um we're gonna switch now to a, a couple of uh, visual examples and is it actually i forgot to ask this ahead of time is it possible to dim the lights for for the last like uh 10 minutes or so well five ish 10 ish great um i've just got uh three three quick, quick examples this is the longest of all, of all of them um i think a lot of you may have seen this documentary that came out recently um it's called 10 meter tower and it was put out by the new york times and sundance um it's by maximilian uh, van arctric and axel danielson um and this is just a three minute excerpt of of uh, two people's interaction on a 10 meter high diving platform. 10 meter tower. You have sound on it? Actually, it's in a different language. Um, so that's fine. Should I read it out loud? <laughs> we can just watch it then.
That's um, <clears throat> that's a piece. If you, if you haven't seen it, it's it's beautiful and it's captivating. It's incredibly engaging, and the only story in these in this in this entire piece is just the I guess the drama of whether someone jumps or not, which actually is the most story based I think of any of these examples. That is that is a proper story, but what takes precedent what takes precedent is the 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 wavering of someone scooting forward and backward and the way they talk to someone else if they're up there with someone else. And you find out a lot more about that relationship than you would in almost any other circumstance where you put someone in what they, a perceived danger um, it, with their significant other. I think all couples should do that, don't you think? <coughs> There's the first cough. Right, let's see if sound works on this one. This one's important for sound. Um, great. It's a little bit loud. <laughs> this is kind of a loud piece, actually. Um, this is a piece uh, called Robbery. It's by Joaquin, uh, forgive me here, Cofrises. Cofrises, how did I do on that? Decent. Um, and it originally aired on FM La Tribu in Argentina. Um, it's a documentary on the 2001 Argentinian Great Depression. And this is a translation put together by Audio Atlas, Radio Atlas, excuse me, um, a project from Eleanor McDowell, who's working on translating pieces in other language uh, with English subtitles so that we can get a little bit broader of a perspective on what's happening in radio. Um, this is about a minute and a half cut from, from uh, close to the end of the piece. Um, and, and just, you'll have to read along as it goes, yeah. En el mundo no cabía toda la humilde alegría de mi pobre corazón. Ahora cuesta abajo en mi rodada las ilusiones pasadas, yo no las puedo arrancar. El sueño con el pasado que añoro, el tiempo viejo que lloro, saquearon supermercado apedrean a la policía que reprime con gases y balas de goma hay heridos uno de ellos es un policía y varios detenidos there we go um, and, and what I really like about this piece is that, uh, again, story is, is minimized. And if you, if you listen to the whole thing, it's very much just a, um, a quick, it's, like, it's as if you were flying um, from like 50 feet above, just kind of popping in on, on different, different places throughout this, I think, a three or four year period of this uh, Great Depression that Argentina, Argentina, <laughs> Argentina uh, experienced in the early 2000s. Um, 
And again, the, the story is minimized in favor of a very immersive sound, in favor of this contrast between these uh, folk songs and uh, people, people's actual lived experience. Um, the last piece I want to uh, play for you is another piece that you might have seen already. Um, good, good if you have. Uh, I think this is one of my favorite pieces from the last couple of years. Um, it was a piece that was published on The Intercept in conjunction with Field of Vision, uh, a video producer named Josh uh, Begley. And it's a piece called Best of Luck with That Wall. Um, and this is about, we'll just do two minutes of this. Uh, it's a really beautiful piece. this piece is that the only character in the piece itself is is the border right um, the only change is the revelation of what comes next and it's a piece where time itself doesn't really exist because we're simply looking at a snapshot of a single moment um, and and you you experience that through a through a longer period um, those are, those are examples I wanted to play, um, but but in in conclusion, uh, I, I want to make it clear what exactly I'm arguing here. Um, I, I'm not arguing that we need to abandon abandon story entirely because I don't think that's actually possible. All of these examples I've shown you do have some element of story, but that's exactly what it is. It's an element. It's not the it's not the um, it's not the dictated law of the piece. Not uh, my apologies to Garrett Crow, but not everything is stories, right? Um, some things are, are not stories. Some things are more other thing than they are stories, and that doesn't make them bad. What I what I'm proposing here is that is that we um, in the in the creating community, the people the people who create podcasts, that we look at story as a, a knob, something that we can uh, turn up in some circumstances and turn down in others to let other things take precedent. Um, so, so yes, again, like I, I don't think that story is a bad thing inherently. What I think it is is I think it can be overused in some situations. When you're making a piece, 
look at it and think of it in its ideal form. And what, what form does it, is its ideal form? Is it a story? Is it something else? Um, the story is not a cult to adhere to, but it's, it should be seen as a dimension of freedom. That's all I have to say. Hello. Uh, thank you all for coming today, and thank you, Emily and, and Finn, for coordinating this and, and inviting us to be a part of it. Um, I um, would like to talk today about the role of narration in a very specific kind of storytelling. Um, I'm, first of all, I'm Bethany Denton. I work on a podcast called Here Be Monsters. Um, for those of you who maybe are not familiar, it's a podcast exploring all different aspects of fear and the unknown. Uh, occasionally, we'll dabble into um, realms of paranormal or, or supernatural, but always our pieces are, uh, see, pieces are uh, grounded in, in real world experiences. Um, and so what I'm going to be primarily talking about is this very specific kind of narrative nonfiction, uh, audio documentary storytelling, um, specifically highly edited pieces, and what the role of narration and really producer presence um, can be or maybe shouldn't be. Um, so as I was preparing for this presentation, kind of thinking about, you know, what what is my aesthetic? What is my philosophy when it comes to producing um, podcasts? I actually went back and started looking at some of my old uh, first uh, pieces that I ever did or uh, work that I did in college. Um, and actually thinking about work that um, Jeff and I have done with uh, first-time producers on our podcast. Um, and I think, from my observation, I do think that there is sometimes a tendency to default to a highly narrated uh, style of this sort of uh, nonfiction storytelling um, with a lot of producer presence. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing um, for there to be narration, but I do think uh, for those of you in this room who are considering um, delving into the world of podcasting and creating these kinds of stories, that it really merits being thoughtful about when and why um, it's a good idea to use narration. So I, first of all, um, why, I, I think that I have an idea of why there is this uh, tendency to default to narration in this kind of storytelling. Um, the first being that uh, I think that there's a really clear common ancestor for this, for podcasting like this, um, public radio, and uh, namely, I'll, I'll speak for myself, This American Life is a huge inspiration. It's a big part of why I'm doing what I'm doing today. Um, and I think, however, that when it comes to podcasting versus producing radio for terrestrial waves, that we as podcasters have very different restrictions, and actually not so much restrictions, but freedoms that um, public or that radio producers don't necessarily have. Um, we don't have time restraints. If we're lucky, we don't have content restraints. Um, in the case of specifically This American Life, a lot of the narration that I hear on that show um, since I've started 
working in, in this field is really used as signposting um, to guide listeners along because there's a very good chance that there will be a good amount of listeners tuning into the middle of a piece and needing you know um, guidance on who's who and what's happening. Um, and I'll talk more about this later, but I don't think that we have that same limitation as podcasters because of the sort of inherent intentionality of the medium. Um, another reason why I think that there is this tendency to default to heavy narration in, in these instances is that it's a really appealing way to, as a producer, have control of the story and particularly control of how a listener might perceive what I guess you would call the point or um, you know important aspects of the piece as as narration or with narration um, you have the opportunity to sort of underscore what a subject has said or that you think is important and that's really appealing um, but I would encourage producers to let go of that and um, in fact. Uh, one of the original uh, titles for this presentation that um, I was spitballing with Jeff, actually I think this was your idea, was um, Stop the Podcast PDA, Let Go of the Listener's Hands. Anyway, um, so that's why, that, those are a couple of reasons why I think that there's kind of this default to mimic the style of um, podcasts predecessors, at least this specific type of podcasting. Again, the, the highly produced narrator, uh, narrative storytelling. Um, and I think as podcasters, I really want to encourage everybody to embrace the intentionality of the medium. I can't think of an instance where someone would tune into the middle of a podcast halfway through the story. You know, I'll speak again for myself. When I am tuning into a podcast, uh, I'm there. I'm there to consume it. Um, you know, I guess there is a chance that I'll turn it off if it's not for me, but that's okay if it's not for me. Not everything is for me. Um, I think that this kind of podcasting and storytelling, it behooves us to consider it more as a piece of literature than a piece of broadcasting. Um, and by that, uh, I don't think that we as podcasters necessarily have the same pressures for accessibility that radio does. And I feel a little bit icky saying that out loud, but I do think that there's something really wonderful in the fact that podcasting can be so specific. You can you can find a podcast nowadays for any any niche interest you want. And I think that that's great. I, you're never going to be able to please everybody anyway, and I think that it behooves us as creators to um, you know, sort of lean into our own aesthetics and points of view um, without trying to, again, hold the listener's hand through a story. Um, and again, with the, the fact that we don't have to work within the same time restrictions as, you know, a typical broadcasting schedule, we can really take the time to let tape breathe and to let listeners sit with tape and really uh, to show instead of tell. Probably the first bit of creative uh, writing advice any of us have ever gotten was show, don't tell. And I think that um, letting go of uh, narration as a necessity can really facilitate that. So I want to share a quick example from
my own work working on Here Be Monsters. Um, I'll just go ahead and play it for you. It's an excerpt from an episode that uh, we produced for uh, last, our last season, um, an episode called Barry's Mental Tempest. Yeah, I was a deck hand for about two years. Worked on a scallop dredger on the Irish Sea in the North Sea. And then I, I got to scupper my own boat when I was 21 years old. Ended up going to work in other boats. and uh, I just loved the, the getting away from everything, the peace and quiet. It was good for burning off all the excess energy I had. I just loved the whole adrenaline rush. You know, you could die at any second and you could the big waves. And just, it was just a way of life. It was, wasn't so much a job, it was a way of life and I just loved it. You know, it was always as if there was somebody with me looking over me, looking over the boat. The main voice I had then was, I believed it was Jesus, you know, it was Jesus talking to me. And he always used to tell me I was one of his disciples. It was a good voice, I liked that voice. <laughs> so I used to feel as if I could control the weather. I could control the, the sea, you know. It was almost like a magical feeling. You know, I felt it was almost like a gift. That didn't last. No, no, it changed. No. I did just, I, I thought a lot that I was insane over the years. So that was um, the opening scene to, uh, again, the piece is called Barry's Mental Tempest, produced by Luke Eldridge, uh, one of our great producers uh, that we've worked with several times now. And I just want to point out something that I actually saw up here in the audience um, that I was kind of hoping would happen. I noticed a couple people physically putting their hands up to their ears or really kind of leaning in to, to try and understand what, what Barry was saying. Um, because as you might have noticed, he has a very thick Scottish brogue, um, which as a producer, it definitely it took me a while working on his tape to really be able to understand everything that he was saying. Um, as some, I don't spend any time in the UK, so I'm not very used to that accent. But um, just an example, our, our editor, when we were first working on this piece, had suggested early on, um, we, we knew we were going to have to put in a content warning for this piece because there uh, uh, are instances, graphic descriptions of violence later in, this, in the piece. Um, and our editor had suggested, you know, you maybe want to just put a couple lines in there at the beginning, give listeners a heads up that um, this is a man in Scotland, uh, just to kind of prepare them for what they're going to hear. And we thought about that, I, I thought about that, but ultimately, what, what I think is, um, works well in, not, in foregoing that bit of narration up top to sort of give listeners a heads up is that it creates that moment of leaning in, of saying, wait, what is this? What's happening? Who is this? Um, and on the note of explicitly saying, uh, before the tape even starts, this is a Scottish man, well, you'll hear in just a moment, he's got a Scottish accent, and you can hear the waves crashing 
you know, we ha basically we had the tape to support anything that we could have said in narration. So this piece, um, I hate to spoil it for anyone who hasn't listened to it, but it, it basically tells the story of Barry who's been diagnosed with schizophrenia in various ways that he's sought treatment throughout his life. Um, some very traditional methods and some non-traditional methods. Um, and originally the piece was conceived as a more sort of um, broad, I mean we had, we had interviews with different doctors and holistic treat, treat or uh, holistic practitioners on different ways to treat um, the specific type of, of mental illness. Um, and it was more of like a, I guess, a structural or institutional critique. Um, but as, as I was working on the tape, it became really clear that the most compelling bits were Barry telling his own story. And ultimately, it didn't feel right to, you know, present to try and present an argument either way, um, because ultimately that's, that's not what, what was the heft of the story. Um, so anyway, as we were working on this piece, I've got actually here with me a bit of um, narration that we had originally written for the piece. And I will say this is, this is an early draft of it, so it's not exactly a fair comparison to say uh, that it doesn't work, but I just want to give you an example of our original instinct was to add this narration about um, Barry that thankfully, in my mind, we cut out. So here's an example of that narration. This is the story of Barry Wiley. Barry is Scottish and lives in Northern Ireland with his wife and young son. Barry finds it difficult to concentrate. His memory can be patchy. He, he drank a lot in his life, messed around with speed, ecstasy, cannabis. He's had years of taking dozens of medications. Barry hears voices. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Barry's mad, he's sick, he's a raving loony. Or, no, he's not. He's exper he experiences the world differently, and he's, he's coping and having normal reactions to abnormal events in his life. So in that instance, all of that is true. That's all, um, you know, that's, that's true to the story of, of Barry's life. But we had tape of Barry explaining all of that. Um, and in this case, I don't think, I mean, this is an instance of like signposting, right? Of like setting the listener up, like this is the story you're about to hear. But ultimately, the listener who is there listening is gonna, know, is gonna find those things out. Um, and ultimately, this was a, a really good lesson for me in just this idea that you want to have the best tape that you can possibly have, and you want to present an expert in, and I use the term expert somewhat loosely, but in this case, Barry's the expert on his own life, and we as producers could not tell his story better than he could. Um, and again, luckily, we had the tape to do it. Um, so in this case, I do think that, you know, you can make the argument that the narration that we were planning to add could have added clarity, um, could have gotten our listeners to a place where they understood what was going on sooner, but what I think is more detrimental is that had we done that, had we had that narration up top to sort of introduce Barry, we would have lost that moment of, of leaning in, of saying, what is this? What's happening? Um, and just a really quick technical note, um, if we listen back to that tape, 
knowing what you know now that it's he's speaking in a Scottish accent, the first three sentences or so are absolutely inconsequential. Like normally we would not include that tape because it doesn't it doesn't relate to anything that happens later in the piece. Um, but by including that up top, that was a way to ease listeners in to Barry's way of speaking. Um, so that by the time you became used to his cadence and his accent, then you were getting the essential information. Um, so I'm going to take the last few minutes of uh, my time here. And if I've convinced you to be really careful about when and why you're using narration, I actually have a couple of tips um, that I have found in my own uh, work on how to set yourself up to not need to rely on narration, I should say. Um, the main key is to just get the best tape you can possibly get. And the unsexy answer here is that the best way to do that is to practice. It's to learn how to have an ear for when there's good tape or when there's, and this is harder, when there's almost good tape. When you maybe have half of an answer uh, that can work as standalone tape. When you're booking someone for an interview, I think it is always a good idea to pre-interview. Um, I think it's always a good idea to give yourself and your, your subject plenty of time, preferably a couple hours, um, and to not be afraid to ask the same question multiple times in different ways, or even multiple times in the same way. Um, I know that for me, when I was first starting, I hated having to, feeling like I was wasting someone's time by re-asking the question. Um, but really, I have found that in doing this work for a couple years now, it has saved my butt so many times to, to have multiple. I like to think of this kind of work as um, playing with puzzle pieces. You know, you get bits of tape. Uh, it's, I don't think of myself as a writer so much as someone who tells stories with other people's words. And I think of it as puzzle pieces. You know, you, you can kind of put the pic put a different picture together with different puzzle pieces and maybe you'll flip it around and it'll be backwards than the way you started. Um, so ultimately you want to give yourself lots of different shaped puzzle pieces to fit in lots of different ways. Um, I think that another tip that I have is if you are You've, you've gotten to the point where you've got tape, you're listening through it, scrubbing the audio, and trying to figure out the arc of the story, and you've got an inclination, oh, I need narration here. Try just playing the tape and giving it a music bed afterward, or even just letting the tape sit. Um, I have found this in working with Jeff, that there are times where we there's tape that really all it needs is time to breathe, time that where you may have an inclination to use narration to underscore something that someone just said to say to the listener, hey, this is important, make sure you're paying attention to this part, that that can be accomplished with space and, and a bit of time in the piece. Um, now this is kind of a tricky one and this is, um, I think I'd be happy to talk to any of you after this because I think that sometimes the ethics of this are a little bit muddy. But what I have found personally helpful is to, when I'm putting, getting ready to interview someone for a story I know I want to tell, is to actually put together a list of dream tape. And what I mean by that is, ideally, I want them to answer this question and perhaps to answer it in 
not in a specific way that is inauthentic, but like in terms of the actual structure of the of the answer. Um, again, you got to. That's something that you really just need a lot of practice with because you don't want to ask leading questions that lead to inauthentic answers, of course. But to just really prepare yourself for the interview so that you actually are uh, seeking out the best tape that you can possibly get. And then the last tip I have is, again, show, don't tell. Just make sure that you are setting yourself up to present a story present, I guess, an argument if you're going that way um, without having to hold the listener's hand. Um, and on that note, happy podcasting. Hi, can you hear me okay? Um, first of all, thank you all for being here. Um, it's, this is really exciting to talk about the thing that we love so much as podcasters. Um, thank you, Emily, and all the people who put this together for making this happen. Um, really do appreciate it. Um, so today I kind of wanted to talk about, I think the things that um, Jeff and, and Bethany were talking about are, are very much intersect with some of the conversations I've been sort of having with myself that I kind of wanted to have with you guys as well. Um, sort of about the role of a show like Arrivals or you know, really any storytelling show in, um, in public media and in the news, in, in public radio. Uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about how podcasting might help us answer some of the questions that we have about storytelling in the news and uh, specifically in public radio. But first of all, let me tell you a little bit about Arrivals. It's a non-narrated show. Um, it's a documentary series. Uh, the themes of the show are migration, transformation, and change. Um, and I wanted to play a few clips for you. Just uh, um, allow me uh, a moment of self-deprecation here. Um, this show kind of started out, like a lot of podcasts, as being super earnest. Um, uh, you know, telling stories about change. Um, so like, this is how it would start. I'm Jonathan Hirsch, and this is Arrivals. Story, transformation, and change. Um, you know, and then, like, I, to me, I kind of think of it almost like a variation of, like, the dude in the basement, you know, podcasting, except, like, way more, you know, romantic. Arrivals is written, produced, and recorded in a town where car horns are bully pulpits the still snow-covered and lovely East Williamsburg neighborhood of Brooklyn, New York, by me. By me, Jonathan Hirsch. Um, I mean, I felt really precious about it at the time, you know? And, uh, you know, to the point that I would, like, I was in my closet recording the stuff, uh, and I sampled the sound of the closet closing and opening uh, to sort of, like, end the piece right after I said this. And until we meet again. There's a closet. May you wind up where you need to be.
I mean, it was a really personal project for me. Like at the time when I first sort of got involved in podcasting, I came up with the idea at like a very a low point in my life, um, and I had had a conversation with somebody that really changed the way I saw things uh, because I was able to sort of experience someone else's suffering and someone else's hardship in a way that took me out of myself for a minute. Um, and I really valued it, and I thought I wanted to keep having those conversations because it made me feel better once. Maybe it would make me feel better again. Um, but things have changed a lot for me since then. Um, you know, like I spent two years as a senior producer of an investigative reporting program called Life of the Law. Um, I helped launch this storytelling audio collective called The Herd. Um, and I work on like probably five or six different shows at the moment. I just recently worked on NPR's Embedded, uh, the new police video series that they did, um, a documentary on global trade um, called Containers. So a lot of different stuff. I do like original reporting now for Latina USA, the Texas Standard, a bunch of places. My, my, I've gravitated towards public radio over time, um, but in this totally accidental way. And I work for the Story Lab at NPR. Um, and, you know, most importantly is the show. Always the show was like this release valve for me. That any of the sort of restrictions, many of the ones that Bethany so eloquently like addressed in her presentation about the clock and all of that stuff, um, I was able to kind of have this place where I would tinker with sound in the show in ways that felt way less high risk. Um, and, you know, for anyone who's worked in public radio, it's a pretty risk-averse space. Um, so with that being said, I wanted to sort of show you kind of the, a little bit of the range of, for those of you who have never heard the show, like a little bit of the range of the kinds of stories that we've told. Because um, I think we have come a long way. I have to say that actually it seems to me that the beginning of my uh, spree of crime and uh, revolutionary violence uh, began f at birth. When we got to the hotel, he booked the room, and at first the lady at the register was giving us a look. She was probably wondering why are these two guys renting out a hotel room at two o'clock in the afternoon on the weekday. So she gave us a key, and when, when we went upstairs, she was still like staring at us. So we got upstairs, we were staying in the room, laying on the bed and talking and 15 minutes later I just hear a bang on the door, open the door, someone was like knocking really, really hard like they were just about to break the door. They got in and they asked, what are you guys doing here? This is Cameroon, we don't want no gays here and stuff like that. I think about when he would tell us, when he was telling me that, that you would never have to worry and then when I come, when it came for me to go to the office to find out about you know, his insurance policy or whatever, they got in contact with me and I went. And I found out it would have expired 12 o'clock that night, February the 1st, when and he did it. Every February the 1st, I'll go through it just like it would just freshly happen. He got sick, and when he told us, you know, I can do slow things like when Kennedy died, you'll always remember where we, you were. We were out on the back deck. And he said, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about this, but I'm leaving you guys the house. We always 
listen to love to operas and or loved operas and I would find you know the newest recording or something we'd come up here he'd be in the bedroom and we'd put on opera and we'd listen to it and at one point we were listening of course how pro, how uh, profound we were listening to La Traviata and of course La Traviata uh, Violetta dies of consumption and at a point in the last act where you know she's very very sick and singing he said I never thought it would take this long and I said, what? He said, dying. He said, I would always be very operatic. I would take one big last breath and I would die. And I said, I know. And he said, I just want it to be over. So we profiled people from all walks of life, you know, from like people who have survived small plane crashes um, to living lives with terminal illness. Um, you know, the kinds of stories that I don't think receive as much airtime on terrestrial, on broadcast radio. Um, complex stories like, you know, we did a story about um, a junkie who was living in Ciudad Juarez in the 1990s before the cartels really like took over that city in the early part of the 2000s um, and his experience of living in a place that's radically different from our understanding of Juarez today. Um, we profiled a tarot card reader on the streets of Brooklyn. Um, we talked to like a a Mormon who experiences this crisis of faith while on a mission in Fiji, of all places. It's really interesting. Um, we talked to drag queens in El Paso, um, a bank robber who you've heard from at the beginning of that clip who found Buddhism while he was in prison. Um, and I don't think I would be doing any of this kind of work if it wasn't for podcasting. It was totally accidental, like I said earlier. Um, I didn't go to journalism school. I didn't even take a class in journalism in college. Um, but I just had an idea for a show and an ear for how I wanted it to be, um, if that makes sense, um, and the kinds of stories that I wanted to tell on the show. And so eventually I kind of was drawn towards public radio. There felt like there was a place for me there to have these conversations in, in substantive ways that sort of intersect with how we're talking about the culture at large. Um, and so, like, the questions I've asked of my work have evolved over time. And this is the great thing about, like, Jeff, you and I were talking about this last night, like, having a work. You know, like, when you have a work, then you can have a conversation with it. And so, for me, a lot of the times, Arrivals was just sort of a way to kind of have, put a mirror up to what I was doing and what I was thinking about people and how I was talking about people, how I was telling their stories, um, both in a journalistic context and in like a storytelling context, um, and see if those two things matched. And so, you know, um, what else can I say about that? Uh, I think I found that like a lot of the questions that I was asking myself about podcasting, journalism, and storytelling seem to mirror a lot of questions we are all as an industry sort of trying to figure out in podcasting, like where these two fields intersect, um, you know, and does this medium help us tell stories better? Um, does it help us do the journalism work better? Or does it sort of like give us enough rope to hang ourselves? These are things that I like, ask myself all the time, like am I dangling too far off of, a, uh, you know, down a rabbit hole or you know, off a pre precipice into some like narrow uh, shade of interest that's not relevant? Or am I helping to expand the vision of the public, like what we think the public is. Um, and so I wanted to go through a couple of episodes of the show and sort of like reflect how that's changed for me over time. Um, sort of like how I've started to think about these things and how they've, how they've, can you guys hear me okay? Keep like rustling around here. A little closer, okay. 
I'll try not to be too tender, though. Hi. Because um, I'm over that. That's like early arrivals. Uh, so, but before I get started, I wanted to share this experience, and I've brought it up with some of the other podcasters who were at this event um, that I had, uh, an experience I had at this event, um, which is Third Coast Festival. Are, how many people here are familiar with Third Coast? Okay, cool. Like half of the room? Um, it's like the largest sort of independent producer, audio producer festival in the country. It happens every other year. Now it happens every year. It's in Chicago. Um, and all of us went there a couple days after the election. And I found myself having a lot of questions after that event. And there were a lot of sort of important conversations that were had both publicly at the conference and then sort of individually. So I arrived in Chicago and I sat down for breakfast with three reporters, or sorry, two reporters and one sort of storytelling editor, producer, um, one from Los Angeles, one from New Orleans, and then sort of an independent radio um, producer, journalist here in New York. And the first thing all of us wanted to talk about was what we got wrong. Not like, you know, whether it's wrong that Trump was elected, but what did we get wrong? How did, so, how did there become this collective mischaracterization of um, our new president? Uh, it was a conversation we were having constantly, and I think a lot of us felt, I know me personally, and maybe it was just, maybe this is just me, but like I felt like I had, in my own work, not lived up to a representative view of the country because I didn't think that my work reflected a, a complex enough vision to include a groundswell of support that would have elected somebody like Donald Trump. Um, so I think it was a conversation we were all having. I don't know the answer to it. I just know that it was like super important at the time. Um, and so after that, after that event, I ended up taking sort of a hard look at my own work and trying to see where perhaps there's a place for the kinds of storytelling production I was doing, moonlighting as, as a producer of, um, that could inform my work as um, a radio producer in a news context or in like a public radio context, um, where we're telling stories about breaking news, where we're doing four minute spots, like the one I had to do at midnight last night, where you get one detail of a person. You got a scene, you got their description, one thing they said, they're cut of tape and then they're gone. Like they're, they serve a function in a short form piece. Um, whereas in Arrivals, you can, I can go however long I want. But there's a downside to that, which is sort of, in my mind is when I look at my earlier, my earlier stories, the sort of sympathy, this like overly sympathetic, I don't wanna read too much into this cut, I'm just gonna play it for you guys to see what you think. But um, I think there is a downside to having enough, kind of like too much space to, to, to tell a story. But let me just play it for you. Oh, I should probably introduce it, though, because it's not going to make sense if I don't. Um, so basically, this is the very first episode of Arrivals. Um, it's about this guy named Ethan Hughes. Uh, he lives in like a sustainable, off-the-grid farm in rural Missouri. Um, and Ethan had this sort of crazy idea um, to dress up as a superhero and travel across the country on bike with a bunch of his friends serving people. And so for him, that meant, you know, like, Recycle pickup, you know, you know, walking, walking old ladies across the street, or whatever it was that they felt like they could do that they thought was good, um, they tried to do. Uh, but in the process, he sort of had this 
messy breakup with his girlfriend who really was not particularly interested in his in his lifestyle or some of the his philosophies and so he shows up after this long trip at their home and um, you know she's with another man and so he's like on the front porch sobbing in his superhero costume uh, that he made himself uh, and I think the other thing you need to know is he had this philosophy um, where he wouldn't give panhandlers money. If they asked him for money, if somebody asked him for money on the street, he would invite them to dinner. And so they, he could, I don't know, fix him or talk to him or her about their issues, you know? So I think in some ways he kind of felt like he was a sort of superhero or, you know, um, uh, a savior of sorts. Uh, and so this was the very first episode of Arrivals we ever did. It was called The Blazing Echidna. Um, it's terrible, but like I want you to hear it just to sort of see how things have changed for me um, over time and maybe how news has infected my work, but then also how hopefully my work can infect the news. Um, so yeah, here's the clip. That's when I met Sarah. I was into solar at that time. She's like, why do you need solar panels? Electricity free, I'd never even thought about it. I'm like, whoa, candlelight. I was like, yeah, who is this woman? I told her I was car free. She's like, great, let's bike to the local play. I was, and she was beautiful inside and out. So I'm like, my dating pool is tiny. I've given all my money away. I'm living car free. And this woman that I'm like super attracted to is like, yes. One of our early dates, we I wanted to take her to the coast because I love the ocean. And um, we get off the Greyhound with our bikes. And we're going to bike down to this camping area. And of course, an intoxicated man in Coos Bay walks up and is like, do you have any money? And I, as my commitment is, is, hey, what's your name? Yeah, what? I don't want to just give you money. Let's go eat and be together. But in the moment he asked me, I, all the past pain of lost partners because of my radicalization, I was, I was terrified. And so I just said, screw it. She'll, you know, my story is like, she'll leave me, but we'll, this will be our date with the drunken homeless man. And we went to a little cafe, the closest place and we ate together and Sarah gave him a big hug and I gave him a big hug and then we got on our bikes after being together for an hour with him. It's not the idea that I'm going to change his life, but just that you're a human being. I'm, I'm going to sit and eat with you and find out your story and just that would be the beginning of a shift. And we're walking back to the bikes and Sarah looks at me and she said, this is the best date I've ever been on. <laughs> I cry when I talk about it. It's like in that moment, I'm like, I found my soulmate. I mean, part of that's like really sweet. You can hear us both laughing and crying together on the tape at the end there. Um, but when I listen to it now, I hear like the sympathetic tone with which I cut this story. You know, like our pieces are non-narrated, so it's harder to isolate, but for me, I'm looking for it, and I can hear it in the editing. I can hear it in the music and how I frame the story. Um, and there was a lot of questions I would have asked him had I been able to go back. Um, questions that might have made him a more complex character, like why did he think there would be a shift 
when he talked to homeless people about what was going on in their lives when they asked him for money if he sat down and fed them a meal. Like, I'm not exactly sure that he's the right person to make that determination, and I would want to ask that question, right? Like, so these are things that I look at now um, that I've learned from public radio, that I've learned from working in the news, you know? Like, there's this amazing editor in the news, uh, the news desk at NPR, and I was in uh, like an edit a couple of weeks ago, and she was describing a piece um, where there was no explicit bias, but she said, the way she described it, I love, she said, I can hear it in the body language of the piece. And I just love that metaphor. I think it's such a perfect characterization of how even in non-narrated works, we can sort of imbue characters with sympathy where maybe we should imbue them with complexity. And so these are the things that I've learned from working in news that I didn't learn from just like making something in a closet and putting some effects on it. Um, and so, I mean, and there's all kinds of other problems that I could get into about like how I characterize the subject, like how I advance the story, how those early works are identified, all tools that are essential that we learn from radio journalism, from the established kind of rule book of how we tell stories. Um, and they're really important especially because they kind of carry a listener from one moment to the next, you know, um, and they operate sort of to what Bethany was saying earlier about, they operate under this assumption that the listener is only going to hear this once. So there is such an urgency to tell the story accurately the first time, and signposting sort of addresses that in a way that podcasting doesn't need to, but even, I don't know, if you listen to every NPR podcast, there's like signposting forever. That's the entire editorial process, you know, it's like perfect signposting. But in some ways, it's not even needed. Um, but in a non-narrated piece, there are ways to subtly sort of punctuate the story and keep you there that I learned from doing these other kinds of works. Um, and I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity to do that. Um, but, you know, I think I'm also... Coming from the podcast world, I'm particularly sensitive to sort of the problematics of broadcasting, like the clock, signposting, the, all the things that we cram into an hour of programming, whether it's like the spots or all the ways that we have to structure a story that define a story, like in an hour-long show, like the fact that This American Life and all the hour-long shows are like three-part, 20-minute segments, roughly, a lot of them. Um, it's built around the clock. It defines the work. Um, and I've never felt the need to do that. So whenever I've had to do that with a story, I just go back and make a longer version of it that I find more interesting. Um, and I think that there's a value in that that extends beyond just like two different mediums talking with each other. And so I kind of wanted to just sort of, you know, jump ahead what I've written here and talk about how, you know, like, Oh, no, I didn't jump ahead. I'm not jumping ahead at all. No, I'm exactly where I need to be, signposting here. Um, so, like, we need, we need license to be able to go down a rabbit hole occasionally, you know? Like, we need to be able to explore the minutia of a character and to let that story breathe, you know? And um, both in how it sounds sonically and how it's edited. Um, and so I wanted to play you guys a clip from one of the early, or one of the more recent episodes of the show. Am I running on time? Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, I will. I'm sorry. Um, pedantic. Okay, so all you need to know about this clip um, is that 
this is the voice of a mother and a daughter, both are of Her Armenian heritage, talking about retracing the path their ancestors made um, from modern Turkey uh, and Syria into the US during the Armenian Genocide in the early 20th century. I remember her. She said, Mom, I'm going to go to Syria and Turkey. I'm going to find the ancestors of that sheikh, and I'm going to say them, tell them, thank you for saving my grandfather's life. I said, John, it's dangerous. You can't go. What do you mean you're going to go? I'm going. And you know what she did? I found the ancestors. Really? Yes. It was such a dark place in her family, and um, and they were very. My mother was very fearful of me returning to of going to Syria because of what her father endured there. So one thing I wanted to just tell you about is, so I, I went to, you know, in 2007 is when I met the Sheikh's family, and they were just the most incredible people. And I returned again to Syria in 2009 and spent more time with them and I, I based myself in Raqqa. When the war broke out in, um, in Syria, it, it, was, it was heartbreaking for me um, to know what, to, to think of those civilians and, and what they're going through. On top of that, to have the Islamic State come over, come in and take over that whole area. And so the family that gave my family refuge, they're now in need of refuge themselves. And one of them left Syria and was part of the wave of refugees and made it to, to Europe. So I'm going to stop it there just because I want to, I, I got to wrap up, but like, there's so many things that are in this piece that are not in earlier pieces of mine. There, you know, you can establish so much in this non-narrated work about the person that you're listening to. You're listening to two people, their family members. They're talking about an ancestor of their family. They're talking about cultural shifts. Um, they're talking about how their perception of their own history has changed over time. Um, so the scope is broader, but I think the details of the story are just as specific. And I think what I I guess what I'm trying to get at, jump ahead to here is that, like, you know, I think when we're doing these profile pieces, like what Arrivals offers this opportunity, which is a more nuanced, complex, expanded view of what the public is. We don't just hear one little piece of that story like you would in a four-minute feature where it's shaved down to just give us exactly what we need to know so that it fits our larger understanding of what the news item is. So instead of advancing the coverage, it advances our view of the people. And so I guess my argument is, is that there's space for both in public radio and in podcasting, and that maybe there's times when the news should be in the background more and the people should be in the front, in the foreground. Um, and so maybe that's a little bit of what we miss, what we lost, what that conversation I had had with so many people at Third Coast, like maybe part of the issue is that we spent a lot of time advancing the coverage and not as much time sort of expanding our view of the people who advance the coverage. And I think a show like Arrivals, Here Be Monsters, definitely does it, like the Kitchen Sisters, like so many of these incredible storytelling producers who are here this week, 
they do that. Um, and I hope we just continue to do it and more people are inspired to do it.